Hello again. You can turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 25 and 26. I read recently, I read this book, it's an older book, by this um, theologian, and he made this funny point that I thought was really good. He said he was flying in this little, like, four-seater little plane going from somewhere, from some airport in Indiana to some rural place in Indiana, and this little tiny plane up there buzzing around in the clouds. And he said, the pilot said, oh, uh-oh, at one point, and he said, He's riding, you know, he doesn't know how to fly. He's just sitting there and he said, what? And the pilot said, well, the, the transponder just died. And he said, well, what's that mean? And the pilot said, oh, it doesn't mean anything. It just means that no one now knows, no one knows where we are anymore. Like the plane doesn't have a beacon beaming out to air traffic control saying, there's a little four-engine plane here. They're still flying fine, but their little transponder thing isn't working. So he said, uh, it, it doesn't matter. It just means that nobody has any idea where we are. And the theologian wrote, he said, you know, that's a perfect example of everything that's gone wrong with our world. And he wrote that in 1990, but it's still true today, 32 years later. Today, I think that's what our world is like. Our world is like Wiley e. Coyote on the mountaintop. You notice he's not standing on anything. He's just being care have you seen my kids don't care about looney tunes but i love looney tunes i watched when i was growing up it made me so happy he would he he'd be running and he's he's skidding off the mountain and he's hanging there all of a sudden he's just gonna look down then look at the roadrunner and then go but he's he's just held in place by inertia he's about to fall he just doesn't know it yet but he's still sitting there and he's like uh-oh what's happening that's what our world is like now with all those, all these values of good and evil and right and wrong and and wholesome and bad, all of these values, they all come from Christianity. They all come from the scriptures. But our society for a long time has explicitly cut that, that cord and thrown the scriptures into the trash, saying we can't have we can't have God in the public sphere. We can't have his values in the. We can't explicitly say these values are from God. We can't have them in the public square. So our society, like a plane that's flying, but no one has any idea where they actually are. Our society is a lot like Wiley e. Coyote, where he's just sort of sitting there in midair and he's about to fall. He just doesn't realize it yet. And that's what we're like. That's what this passage is about. The title of the sermon is, Why is this so crazy? And as I read this passage, Acts 25 and 26, I seized on Acts chapter 26 in verse 24. I think it's verse 24, but it's when Festus, the new Roman governor, is talking to Paul, and then he just interrupts him. He just interrupts him, and Paul never really gets a chance to speak much again. And he says, you're crazy. Paul's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the Christian hope. He's talking about his view of the world and where it's going and what's going to happen. And Festus just jumps in and says, you are crazy. You're insane, he says. And as I read that, I thought, that's what this passage is. That, that's what this passage must be about if I'm going to preach it. It has to be, the whole center of it coalesces right there in that that, that interruption by Festus, where he says that Paul is crazy. He's listening to Paul, and he thinks it's crazy, it's dumb, never heard anything like it before, doesn't make any sense. Christians, 
for a long time have been on the defensive in polite society as being retrograde or out of touch or as being fought, believing fossilized things from a bygone age or as being weird and crazy because people don't understand what Christians believe. And sometimes Christians don't do a good job explaining what they believe. And Festus looks at what Paul is saying as Paul explains what he believes and why he's even there. What has he been doing that made him come there, be arrested and be in prison for several years and be standing there before Festus? And as Paul explains this, Festus says, you're crazy. But the thing is, Festus and everyone else in the world who isn't a Christian is actually Wiley e. Coyote standing there, still on level with a roadrunner, but not actually standing on anything. Everyone has different ways of seeing the world. Some ways the Christian way makes sense, other ways don't, if they, people stop to think about it. So this is going to be, uh, what we're going to see in these two chapters is a, is a clash between two totally different ways of looking at the world. And the world is looking at Paul and has never heard anything like it. Festus has never heard anything like it. And he says, he says, Paul is crazy. But I want us to think today, what is so crazy about the Christian faith, the Christian story? Should you be embarrassed for being a Christian? Of course, you know, the answer is no. But if you, if you get reactions from coworkers or you feel uh, an implicit force or pressure from society that you must be a really weird person because you believe things that the scriptures say are true. Why is the Christian story so crazy? And is it crazy? Who is the crazy one? The world that doesn't seem to have a foundation to stand on like Wiley e. Coyote, but claims all sorts of things? Or the Christians whose story does make sense? And that's the clash we're going to see in these two chapters as Paul has his second round of interrogation by another Roman governor. We're going to look through the passage going from Jerusalem to the interview in Caesarea, and then we're going to talk about why Christianity isn't crazy. So two, two moves in this sermon, and then we'll be finished. So let's begin and let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Lord, you caused all the scriptures to be written for our learning, for our good. We ask that you give us the wisdom to hear them, to read them, to mark them, to learn from them, and to sink your words into our hearts so that we'd embrace and always hold fast the hope of everlasting life in the new community in the world to come, which you've given us through our Savior, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to go very fast. I'm not going to read every verse. I'll summarize a little bit of it. But in Acts 25, we left it last week with we left it last week with Felix is not the governor anymore. He got relieved of duty after two years of hoping that Paul would bribe him. But Felix is gone now. Now we have a new guy named Festus who's there as the governor. So Acts 25, verse 1. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea, where the, the, the governor's place was, to Jerusalem, on your screen before you, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. So he's been there three days. If you're the, if you're the Roman governor in the province of Judea, who should you go see real soon after you get there? 
you have to go do a meet and greet with the Jewish leaders because they're the ones who you need to be on, have relationships with, so you have to do your, your meet and greet. Have you had a new boss at work where he goes around and wants to talk with everyone and, and hear from everyone? He's like, I want you to know I have an open door policy. And, rah, rah, rah. and so all of this, so this is what's happening with Festus. He gets there, unpacks his bags, gets, gets everything set up. Three days later, off to Jerusalem to do a meet and greet with the Jewish leaders. And what's the first thing, what's the big, you know, when you meet your boss, your new boss, you don't know the person, so you're trying to figure out, you know, because of course your new boss is going to ask you, you know, so what are the things, if you're in a position of leadership, but your boss is now new, he's going to say, so what are the things you're really, that are really challenging for you right now? How can I help you? Or what are the big things on your agenda? You may want to make, you want to make sure you pick the best things, right? You can't just unload all your problems because then your new boss will think you're crazy or a troublemaker. So you have to like pick how should this first interview go? And whatever you do pick to talk about, it's probably going to be your most important thing. So Festus gets to Jerusalem. What's the first thing? What's the very first thing of all the things the Jewish leaders could talk about? What's the first thing they bring up? Paul needs to die, right? That's the first thing they bring up. So clearly this has been eating away at their souls for two years. We are in the, this is the late 50s now. Festus is only there for about three, four, five years. He dies in 62 AD. But he gets there. This is what they say. So Acts 25, verse 3, they requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, because he's still in Caesarea, for they were planning an ambush to kill him along the way. How great. This, this rage hasn't gone away. Before, it was just a bunch of crazy people on the fringe who were planning to kill him. Now the chief priests and the, 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 the chief priests and the Jewish leaders are actually planning to kill him. Say, bring him to Jerusalem so we can talk to him and have a trial, and they plan to just kill him on the way. Sweet folks. Verse 24, Festus said, Paul is being held at Caesarea on the screen before you, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me, and if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. So he basically says, not so fast. Come to Caesarea and we'll see if we can settle this before you know, bringing him to Jerusalem and going through all this nonsense. After spending eight or ten days with them, Felix Festus went down to Caesarea. So now we're in Caesarea. There's two rounds in Caesarea, rounds, round one and round two. This is round one. The next day he convened the court, verse 6, in order that Paul be brought before him. So here he is. When Paul came in, the Jews who'd come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they, they can't prove any of them. They tried before. They have no proof. They have no evidence. They're all lies. He wasn't causing a disturbance. They can't produce any witnesses that say he was. They have no witnesses. So they've really, you know, in two years, they've, they've, they've gained nothing. Verse 8, then Paul made his defense. I've done nothing wrong against the Jewish law, against the temple, or against Caesar. You have nothing. Festus, verse 9, wishing to do the Jews a favor, if you want to, if you're a Roman governor, you want to, you want to have a peaceful reign and get things done, the Jewish leaders need to, you need to work with these people. So immediately he knows he has to try and make the Jewish leaders happy. He's the new governor. He wants to make sure things go well. So you have to work with these people. Wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, 
Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? So this informal little tete-a-tete isn't working out and there's no clear-cut thing. So he's like, well, maybe we should do a formal trial and lay everything out and do it in Jerusalem like they asked. And Paul says, no, he doesn't want to go to Jerusalem. Maybe he knows it's probably not a good idea to go back to Jerusalem. But at any rate, he says no. In verse 11, he says, I appeal to Caesar. He says, I want to get out of here. I don't want to be tried here. I want to go to Rome and appeal to Caesar. And what did God tell Paul? The reason why I think Paul asked is because before, in Acts 23, 11, God told Paul as he's in prison when he was arrested in the temple, you've testified about me in Jerusalem. You'll also testify about me in Rome. And Paul, after two years of these stupid interviews over and over that never get anywhere, he's like, I'm done with this place. I appeal to Caesar. Verse 12. After Festus had conferred with his council, he declared, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. But Festus has a problem. What's he supposed to say the charge is? What has Paul done wrong? He doesn't know what Paul's done wrong. He just, know that, he just knows that the Jewish people really hate him. But he doesn't know what Paul has done. Do you think that, the, do you think that Caesar cares about, about conflict, about Jewish law? Do you think Governor Inslee cares whether you believe in the rapture? No. Like I said last week, no one cares. He couldn't care less. So Festus can't just send Paul saying, there's a dispute about who the Messiah is. He doesn't care. That's an internal thing. He, he doesn't know what to accuse Paul of, so he has to get a better read on the situation. He needs to call in. By happenstance, he has someone who can help him understand this conflict and maybe frame it in a way so that Caesar will, or one of his minions, will listen to the case because he doesn't know what to say. So we get to verse 13. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. King Agrippa is a descendant of Herod, who the Herod from who, who murdered the, the children when Jesus was born. He grew up in Rome. He's a Roman Jewish person. He's in charge of Judea as the Jewish representative along with Festus. So that's like a co, not really a co-rule thing, but kind of, where he's the Jewish representative who helps Festus keep the peace and keep things going. So King Agrippa is here to do a meet and greet too, to say hello, pay his respects. He brings his Jewish wife with him. And so that, that's what Festus says. He's like, I'm so glad you're here. I have this guy, I don't know what to do with him. There's this crazy dispute, um, and I really don't know what to say the deal is because Rome doesn't care about internal squabbles, about Jewish law. So in 25 verse 18, Festus is talking to Agrippa, and he said, you know, when his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute about, uh, with him about their own religion. And about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. And Festus is like, what am I supposed to? I don't know what to do with that. I don't care about that. I was at a loss, verse 20. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters. Because he's a Roman, he doesn't know anything about this. So I asked if he'd be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. But when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesarea. So he's like, 
you need to help me with this guy. Help me figure out what the entire dispute is about. What's, what are these people upset about? Verse 22, Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. And Festus is like, tomorrow you'll hear him. You can hear him for yourself. Tell me what this is all about, please, because I don't understand it. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. And this is round two now. Round one was the quick interview with the Jewish leaders and Festus. And he's like, I have no idea what you guys are even upset about. Round two, he brings in Agrippa to help him figure out what the conflict is. No Jewish leaders, just Agrippa and Paul and him and whoever else, all the other hangers on who might be lurking around. Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus explains publicly, you know, I don't know what this guy's done. I don't know what the deal is. Maybe Agrippa, you can help me figure this out. So in chapter 26, verse 1, Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Let's hear it. Tell me what the deal is. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. Verse 2, 26, verse 2. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusation of the Jews. And especially so, why? Why is he so happy to talk to King Agrippa? Because King Agrippa is a Jewish person and he knows what Paul is going to be talking about, right? He can, he can understand the, the, the dispute and what is causing all of this friction. Festus doesn't have a clue. Agrippa does. And especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. He explains, I was raised as a Jewish person, a Pharisee, a devout person. Everyone knows it. You can ask anyone in Jerusalem. Everyone knows I was raised as a Pharisee, and I'm not a troublemaker. 26, verse 6. And now it is because of my hope in what God promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. So what's Paul saying? What Paul is saying is this. Everything that the prophets told about, everything we've been waiting for, I believe it's happened. They don't believe it's happened. That's what this whole dispute is about. I believe Jesus is the, is the king who they said would come. I believe Jesus is the prophet who Moses said would come. I believe Jesus is the priest who atones for our sin. I believe all of it's true, and that's what this whole dispute is about. That's what everything is about. That's what this is. A promise that a Messiah would come and give a new beginning, be a new king, rescue his people, and usher in a new and better tomorrow. That's what they've been waiting for. You know, when Jesus came, Jesus didn't come explaining things as though no one had ever heard it. When he came, he said, the time has come. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. What he, what he, when he said that, he, knew, he assumed they'd understand what he's talking about. Everything you've been waiting for, it's here. So let's do this thing. Everything you've been waiting for, it's all here. And Paul says, that's what this argument's about. I think it's here. They don't think it's here. Verse 7, 
This is the promise that our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it's because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Why is this so crazy? The whole dispute is he can't be the Messiah. And Paul's like, why? Why is it so crazy that he is the Messiah and they tried to kill him and he rose from the dead? Why is that so crazy? Is God limited? Could God not do things? I can't raise the dead, but why can God not raise the dead? Why can the God who parted the Red Sea not raise the Messiah? Why is this a, such a big no? Why? And he goes on and explains, I used to think the same thing they did. I persecuted people. I went far and wide. I testified against people. People were put to death because of my testimony. I went from one synagogue to another like a crazy person, searching for people I thought were heretics to drag them out to do justice for God, Paul says. That used to be me. I used to be just like these guys who want me dead. That, that was me. And then he talks about his conversion experience on the Damascus Road. He talks about the bright light, brighter than the sun shining on him, the voice speaking to him from heaven. And then he explains in chapter 26, verse 16, the mission God gave him to do, which is what I want us to focus on, which is why Festus thinks he's crazy. He says, Jesus spoke to him. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting. In chapter 26, verse 16, Jesus, Paul said, Messiah told me this. Now get up, Jesus is speaking to him. Now get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. So what's he supposed to do? I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. And this is the mission. I am sending you to them, to his own people, and to the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to do what? To open their eyes, number one. To turn them from darkness to light, number two. And from the power of God to Satan. Those three things. In order for you to be a Christian, God needs to open your eyes because you can't open them yourself. Someone has to tell you a message the Holy Spirit will use to then open your eyes. 2 Corinthians 4, chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 4, has this image of this, this veil that's been laid over your eyes. Like if you've, had, if you've had cataracts surgery or cataracts, where it's like this, this cloud, this ever-increasing cloud is destroying your vision and shrinking it down, there's this veil over people's hearts. And it needs to be taken away so the light of the gospel can shine in. That's what this opening your eyes thing is about. God has to open your eyes and then turn you from darkness to the light. Your eyes are open and you're like, what am I doing here? Ah, oh, the light. And you walk toward the light, which is the gospel. And what does it mean to go from darkness to light? From the power of Satan to the power of God. Why is God doing this? So that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. God wants to forgive people's sins, not just Jewish people's sins. He wants to forgive Jews and Gentiles so they can all find a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. 
That's Paul's mission. That's God's burden. That's what Jesus came to do, to rescue people from all over the world, to bring them into the family. That's what Paul is telling Agrippa. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient. That's what I've been doing. That's why I'm here. That's why they hate me. That's why I was arrested, because I've just been doing what the Messiah told me to do. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, then in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. So everywhere. I preached that they should, three things, repent, turn to God, and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. Those three things sum up the gospel. You need to repent. You need to turn from darkness to light. You need to turn from rebellion to submission to the Lord who loves you. Turn to God and then prove it's true by the way you act. You say, if you, if you, before you got married or if you're not married now, if, you have, if you're a lady and you have a boyfriend who says he loves you, but he doesn't call you, doesn't text you, never does anything for you, doesn't show any love, is he, is he telling you the truth? He's a liar. How, but how do you know? I can see the actions. They speak volumes. He doesn't care. It's our relationship with God is the same. You love God, there will be fruit. Sometimes it's not the best fruit, but there's, there is recognizable fruit. Verse 21, that is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. And here we come up to the point. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. Everything that's happening, that's what the prophets said would happen. This is an internal dispute between me and the Jewish leaders. There's nothing that Rome needs to care about. That's what this is about. And this is what he said. Number one, the Messiah would suffer. Number two, be the first to rise from the dead. And number three, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. All I'm doing, Paul says, is telling the world exactly what Moses and the prophets said would happen. And who's he, is he talking to Agrippa or is he talking to Festus? Who's Paul directing his, his attention in his words at? Agrippa or Festus? It's Agrippa. He's been talking to Agrippa. He's the one he's really talking to because Agrippa is the one who can understand and explain to Festus. So Festus is listening, doesn't really get what's being said. He just knows it sounds weird. And so Festus can't take it anymore. Verse 24, and this is the crux of this. If you want to understand this passage, this is what it is. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul. He shouted, your great learning is driving you insane. Agrippa doesn't say anything, which is interesting. He says he has nothing to say. But Festus has never heard any of this before. He's like, this is some crazy talk. The first time I went to church, uh, the first time I went to church was, um, I was actually invited by uh, Starla before we were married. She said I couldn't date her unless... I came to church with her. It was very clever. So I went to church with her. And I never heard anything about Christianity before. So I'm listening to this, and I thought, you people are crazy, because I never heard anything. She invited me on Easter. So the pastor's doing this long thing about, he's showing pictures of how long the spikes were that were nailed into Jesus' feet. And I was watching this, and I was like, my goodness, people are crazy. Because I, I knew literally nothing about Christianity. I was like Festus. I knew nothing about Christianity. 
I knew a guy named Jesus was important, that's it. And I swear I'm not kidding. I knew not one single thing about Christianity. It was an unchristian home. It wasn't anti-Christian, it was just whatever. I never heard anything. So I was like Festus. I was like, these people are crazy. But then I looked over at Starla and I said, I guess I'll keep coming, I guess. <laughs> I was like, I can do this, I guess. It's only an hour, you know? Um, but God had other plans. But I thought it was crazy. And Festus is like, you are crazy. I've never heard anything like this before. Psycho. You're a smart guy, Paul, but it's like you've been in the library too long. Your great learning is driving you insane. And Paul says this. And this, these two verses, 24 and 25, are the, the core of the, the message this morning. Verse 25. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. He's very polite very matter of fact he's really trying to not antagonize and this is what he says what i am saying is true and reasonable your translation might have something different true and logical true and sound whatever uh you get the point what i'm saying is true and it's reasonable it's not insane it's the opposite of insanity it's absolutely logical it's reasonable it makes sense this isn't crazy talk. Why do you say it's crazy? This makes sense. And then he ignores Festus because he doesn't really want to talk to Festus. He, it's not that Festus is a lost cause, but his target is Agrippa, who does understand these things. So he says what he says to Festus, and he just like whew, blocks him, and he turns to Agrippa in verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do pushing at him, poking at him. I know you know what I'm saying. I, he's like, Agrippa's like a cultural Christian where you might not really be a dedicated practicing Christian, but you know the story, right? You know about Jesus and his love. You went to Awanas when you were a kid or whatever. And you, you know, even if you aren't really a devout practitioner or even a believer, but you know the story. So Paul looks at Agrippa and he says, you know the story. Do you believe the prophets or not, Agrippa? And Agrippa said to Paul, doesn't know what to say. People aren't sure how to take what Agrippa says. Is Agrippa saying, you've almost made me be a Christian. That's what the King James has. Almost thou hast persuaded me to be a Christian. Or is Festus just blustering and trying to throw out filler words because he doesn't know what to say? I don't have the YouTube video because they took it down. So I don't know exactly. You can't read Agrippa's face. But I think the NIV is correct in the way it translates it. Agrippa is not saying, well, you almost got me. He's saying in a... In a did you, have you watched interviews with politicians where they're asked a question and they clearly don't know how to answer, so they just like bluster and throw out a bunch of verbal diarrhea for a minute to gain time to think? Or they're like, I'm sorry, could you repeat the question? Or something. So Agrippa's like, uh, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> did, did you think you could make me be a Christian in such a short amount of time? I think he doesn't know what to say. And I think he's just blustering and just spewing out some random words because he doesn't know how to answer. As the Jewish representative, is he supposed, can he really say, I don't agree with the prophets? He doesn't know what he's supposed to say. So he just, he just spouts that off. 
And Paul replied, short time or long, whether it's a short time or a long time that I have to talk to you, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. Like, I hope that you believe in Jesus as the Messiah, just like I do, but without the chains. The king rose. There's no more discussion. They're done. He never gets to speak to Festus again. He never gets to speak to Agrippa again. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with him, and they leave. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he'd not appealed to Caesar. So what's he saying? There's no problem here. This is an internal dispute. There's no law broken. That's why the, that's why the, that's why the Olympia Police Department doesn't care about what you believe about Jesus or the, or the Trinity or the rapture. It's an internal dispute. They couldn't care less. So this is the point that I want to make today. The title of the sermon is, Why is this so crazy? Festus thought it was. This world thinks the Christian message is crazy. They don't understand it. Or they don't want to understand it. Everybody has, as I mentioned before, everyone has a, a way to make sense of the world. Everyone has a way to make sense of the world. One way that, one way that people have talked about what exactly is a religion. Everyone has a religion. Doesn't, it can be a formal religion or it could be an informal one. Everyone has a religion. Some sort of organized belief or some sort of organized belief with a pattern of beliefs and practices about what's tr the most important things in life, ultimate meaning, that assumes the existence of the supernatural or that tries to explain what's good and right versus what's normal and not worth our time. Everyone has a religion. Some people believe in science as the ultimate religion. Whatever the person in the lab coat says, I believe it. Some people um, think that we just make our own morals and that there is no God, that there is no creation. We all just, we're all just, the most important things in the world are just stuff, just matter, just things, that there's no, there's no existence beyond the grave. Some people believe in Islam. Some people, the religion is, it, is fighting about how God doesn't exist. And that's their ultimate thing. That's the thing that drives their life, that gives them meaning, is arguing about how God doesn't exist. Some people, their sexual identity is their thing. And you see that in the LGBTQ movement. It's, it's the driving force that gives them purpose and meaning in life. It's the defining thing of their life. Some, for some people, the right to, to abortion is the driving thing that animates their life, that they devote their lives to fighting for. We must be able to have abortions. And that's, it's like a religious, a religious commitment. And some people are Christians. If we all have stories that function as religion, then why is Paul, why is it crazy that Paul had a story too? That Christians have their story. Why did Festus think Paul's story was so crazy? This is what Paul's story was in verses uh, 16, to, 16 to 18. Chapter 26, verses 16 to 18. When Paul explained what Jesus had told him to do, this is the story Paul mentioned. There's more to the story, but this is what he said in those verses. Number one, he says we need to be fixed. Number two, we can't fix ourselves. Number three, God has staged a rescue mission. And number four, why did he do it? Because he wants to offer a place in his family. He said we need to be turned from darkness to light. We need to be fixed, number one. There's something wrong with us, and God wants to fix it. 
The Sandy Hook massacre, the elementary school shooting 10 years ago, where this masked crazy gunman killed 20 children between ages of six and seven. The shooting in Buffalo, New York, the white supremacist guy who killed people at a supermarket targeting, targeting black people. There's actually, there's actually um, eyewitness testimony from a cashier, a white cashier who was hiding behind the cash register. And as the gunman's walking by, he trains his rifle on the guy, the employee behind the cash register. He sees that he's white and he says, oh, sorry, and just moves on and shoots a black person. This is this white supremacist killer. There's something wrong with us right? There's something wrong with people on a crazy level like that. And even just on an interpersonal level, we're not the people we know we should be. There's something wrong with us. Number one. Number two, we can't fix ourselves. So someone has to do it for us. If we could fix ourselves, what, what hasn't been tried yet? Wouldn't, wouldn't we have found a way to fix ourselves if we could? We can't fix ourselves. No, no scheme, no self-help book, no amount of therapy will fix us individually and as, as a group. We have problems and we can't fix it. Someone needs to come from outside and fix it for us. So then we get the number three, this, this rescue mission. God told Paul, I'm going to send you to them to open their eyes. So from the power of, they'll turn from the power of Satan to the power of God. They can't rescue, we can't rescue ourselves. God has to send, save people and then send them so that he can rescue them, so that they can be turned from darkness to light, their eyes will be open, they'll turn from Satan, and they'll turn to God. The rescue mission through Jesus, through his death and his life and his resurrection. Why? Number four, because he wants, he wants people to join his family. He said, told Paul, because I want to forgive their sins and I want, to, I, want to, I want to give them a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Why is it crazy to think that this story makes sense of our world and gives us hope. Why is this a crazy story? That's why Paul said, I'm not crazy. This is true and reasonable. Christianity isn't crazy. It makes sense. It's the opposite of insanity. It answers the questions of life. It answers what's wrong with us and how is it going to be fixed? How does, yours, how does your idea answer it? Christianity has an answer for it through Jesus. And it makes sense. If you think about it, Paul says, it makes sense. It's logical. It's true. Just by deduction, it makes sense. Why is this? What is this? What's this piece of furniture here for? What's it here for? You can look at it and make deductions. It's too small to be a real desk. Well, I guess it could be a desk, but it's a small desk. So it's not a desk. You can't spread a lot of papers out on it. It's too tall to sit behind. So you're supposed to stand here. It has a microphone on it, so you must be meant to speak behind it. And because of its position here on this platform, looking at a bunch of people staring at me, it's clear that this piece of furniture is meant to be a speaking desk of some kind. It's true. It's reasonable. You can logically say, I can figure out what this thing is. It makes sense. Now we go to God's promise from his story about those things we mentioned before. In order for a new beginning to happen, first we have to be rescued, then we have to be fixed, and Jesus is the one who God is going to send to do these things. So when Paul says, I'm not crazy, this makes sense. To Festus, I wonder what Festus would have said if Paul would have had the opportunity to say, well, what's your answer? You say it's crazy, why? What's your answer 
to how messed up we are and how messed up this world is. What's the solution? Why is it here? How will it be fixed? What's your answer? For people who, who listen or, or who, who are listening to this or watching this now or in the future, if you think Christianity is crazy, and you can ask this in a, in, a, in, a, in a sincere way to your friends and family, if Christianity is crazy, then what's your solution to the problem of evil gunmen killing people? What's your solution to the problem of broken marriages because of broken people? What's your solution to the fact that we are broken people who need to be fixed? If we can agree that we are broken people who need to be fixed, then how are we supposed to, how do we get fixed? Do we do it ourselves? Has that ever worked? What hasn't been tried that actually has the promise of working? Is it just, it, it, what, needs, what needs to be tried? And if you don't have an answer beyond self-help, therapy, or the John Lennon song, Imagine, what do you actually have to offer that'll actually solve the problem of we're broken people? What's your solution? Does your solution make more sense? I'd like to know what it is. What's your solution? And if you don't actually have one, if, if you've never actually thought about it reflexively and you don't actually have an answer for how can we be fixed, what then? Where's your hope? What is your hope? Do you have anything? Or are you just criticizing something that you don't understand? Christianity isn't crazy. It makes sense. We're broken. God has sent Jesus to fix us on a rescue mission. He's going to forgive our sins. Why? Because he wants to give us a place in his family. That's what Christianity says. If your story, Paul could have said to Festus, or you can say to your friends and coworkers and neighbors and, and, and family members who don't understand Christianity, not in a nasty way, but in a sincere way, if, you're, if you think Christianity is crazy, but your story can't, has no reasonable answer to, the question, to a question as basic as what's wrong with us and how can we fix it, then that means your story can't be true. So what, what, what does that even mean? What are you going to do about that if the story you say you believe in can't answer the most basic question of what's wrong with us and has no hope to offer? other than some vague thing about if we do enough therapy, we'll get better, or if we pass the right government program, we'll all be fixed. We won't be fixed. So what are you going to do about that that your story doesn't make any sense? Christianity does make sense, is what Paul is saying. And you can either, when you listen to the Christian story, you can either be like Festus and just interrupt like a, like a blustering fool, hey, you're crazy, without actually thinking about what Paul's saying, or you can be like Agrippa and just mumble, some, mumble something meaningless and then run away. You think you can make me a Christian in so short a period of time? And just, and just wander away. Or you can ask yourself, seriously think, think to yourself, if what I believe makes no sense because it can't answer just the most basic questions of life, what's wrong with us, what's wrong with me, why are we broken people, then that means it can't be true, so why do I believe it? Why do I even believe it? Why don't I believe a story that actually does make sense? And Paul, though he's dead, he speaks this morning, and our passage tells you Christianity is not insane. It's true. It's reasonable. And yet, 
all of that still seems so, to many of us, just abstract, pie in the sky, boring. Because like Felix last week, we have a lot of more important things to do. So we ignore God's promptings, we ignore his pokes, we ignore the splinters he puts into our minds and our psyches to get our attention. We just ignore them. I'll close by reading something very sad. I'm going to read you a few excerpts from some obituaries from this past week in the Olympian. I'm not going to tell you people's actual names because that would be that would be in poor taste. From this past week in the Olympian, I'm going to read you some obituaries. Excerpts from, from a few. Here's one. Bill wanted to be remembered as always being kind, caring and generous, and never cheated at golf. Jeff was a kind-hearted man who loved fishing and a good conversation. And I'm picking out the most relevant personal information about the people. There's all the, was born this date, graduated high school, went to college. These are the, the most important things in each obituary. And I'm not joking. Jeff was a kind-hearted man who loved fishing and a good conversation. Andy enjoyed UW football, attending games at Husky Stadium, and traveling to away games in his motorhome. Ron was always proud to say he was from Olympia. He loved the uniqueness of Olympia, especially the music scene. He even had Olympia tattooed in large letters on his left forearm. It much resembled the same design of the Olympia beer lettering. We don't know much about these departed souls, but what we do know is that obituaries seek to try and encapsulate who the person was in a short amount of space. You know, the driving force, the passion that made them them. And what do we have here? We have golf, we have fishing, we have football, we have motorhomes, and we have the Olympia Brewing Company. People, these obituaries for these poor people, suggest that they had little time for deeper questions. And it's possible they were all devout Christians and did love the Lord. But in each one of those cases, and these are just the, the first five I saw in the Olympian, when their families came time to sum up who is dad, who is mom, what they came up with were golf, fishing, football, the Olympia Beer Company, and motorhomes, and UW football. That's the sum of their life's passion. Christianity is not crazy. So to the outsider, to someone who's not a Christian who listens to this, there is a choice to be made about whether you're going to pause and think about eternal things or not. To Festus, he didn't have time to bother. This is crazy, and he left. To Agrippa, I think he was troubled, but blustered some nonsense and walked away. We have to make a decision on whether we're going to, be, whether we're going to think about eternal things or not. To someone who thinks Christianity is crazy, but is faced with the fact that your story, if you reject Christianity, doesn't make much sense at all about answering the basic questions of life, what are you going to do about it? Will you consider Christianity? Will you think about what Paul is saying about Christianity versus the story you prefer to hold now? And if your story makes no sense, but you choose to keep believing it anyway, then aren't you the crazy one instead of the Christian? And to the Christian, your trust and loyalty to Christ is not a crazy thing. It's not an irrational thing. It's not an insane thing. It's a true thing. It's a logical thing. It's a reasonable thing. It's the opposite of irrational. 
And one thing you can do to try and get this across to, to your friends and family and neighbors, your coworkers, is to ask them when you have opportunity, what is your story that answers these big questions of life? And does it make sense or not? And if it doesn't make sense, again, aren't they the crazy ones instead of you? That's what I think God would have us to think and take away from this passage, as Paul is faced with his second and last interview with the Roman governor. Who's the crazy one, and why is Christianity so crazy? Well, the answer is it isn't. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Lord, help us to know you more and to love you. Help us to have the courage to take advantage of opportunities to speak to friends and neighbors and coworkers and ask them about their story and contrast it with our story. Help them to see that the Christian story makes sense of their life, makes sense of who they are, who they want to be, their drive and quest for purpose and transcendence in life, and tells them about a world to come that's better than now, where justice reigns and the wrong are punished, where things are right and good. Help them to contrast their story with your story and give us the, give us the ability to speak love and truth into people's lives with whom you bring us in contact. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.